Testing. Glory to God. Um, all the videos are up already on the YouTube channel. So if anybody wants to go back and listen, I think it's under, I don't think it's under my name. I think it's under Gospel Revolution Church. You can find them all there. You can find all the ones from Ireland too. You can find all the ones from all the time. Um, except the Wednesday night Bible study. But Yolanda, now that you said that, I'm going to make a playlist of all the Wednesday night Bible studies on the page yes. so people can find them um, and know they're there. So, um, oh, let me get this. Before we maybe start, there's so many things I could say to you all. There's so many things I could, oh, did I just mess that up? Let's see. No, I think I'm still good. There's so many things I could say to you all, but I come a long way. And maybe there's things you want to know <laughs> that you've been twisting on for a long time. And so I know nobody likes to talk, <laughs> myself included. I'm not, I'm not saying that just about you all. I don't even like to talk. You might think that sounds surprising. I do not like talking in front of people. I can't stand it, actually. So it's like a weird, strange inside joke God and I have about how did I find myself here. Um, <laughs> but if there's things that you guys are pondering, twisting on, questions that you might like to know, I come a long way. And you don't want to let me come and go without asking. Right? You, you don't. If you have things on your heart. And the camera's only on me, it's not on you. So they won't see your face. You don't have to say who you are when you talk. And if you want it to be cut, I'll cut it. And you won't be on there at all. But you don't want to let me leave and then think, well, I wish I would have asked. Because here I am, right? Here I am sitting right here. And so you can ask me anything you like. And we can get into it. And a lot of times I show up on Sunday morning and I say, what do you want to talk about today? Try to give people an opportunity to say something themselves, something they're thinking of. Certainly all of you are thinking of something. I know human beings, and human beings are all the time thinking about their life, and they're all the time thinking about their life with God, and they're all the time uh, having questions about that. What does this mean? What does that mean? What, what should I think about this? Why does this happen? Why does that happen? What does it mean that this happens? What does it mean that that happened? So here I am. Absolutely. <laughs> in your messages, you, you talk a lot about seeing God in your situation. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? How can I see that? What I mean by that is, and I'll just explain the theology that opened my eyes. What I mean by that is my eyes have been healed, and I'm not looking with my natural eyes anymore. The Bible says that we live by faith and not by sight. Well, that doesn't mean we don't live by sight at all. It just means faith has become our sight. Right, And so now my eyes have been healed, my sight's been healed by the Lord Jesus, and now I have eyes to see out of my heart God with me all of the time. Okay, And um, that's a very good question because the problem for all of huma humanity was that they couldn't see God was with them. Right? It says the carnal mind can't comprehend God. And so we couldn't see God was there. The reason we couldn't see there is because see God is because we saw death and darkness. Right? I say this a lot, but it's not just that God is a person. He is a person. He's Father. But He has life in Himself. And if we don't think we see life there, 
then we also think God's not there. Because if God's there, life should be there. But if we see death and darkness there, then how can God be there, right? Because how could they both be there? How could they both be present, okay? So one of the main things God did at the cross was to enter into the idea that He wasn't there with us in the midst of darkness. That's why it says a great light has shined to the people who dwell in darkness, right? And I'll just, some of you that listen to me have already had me come rip up all your theology, so you might feel better. Some of you that haven't listened to me, I'm about to rip up your theology, okay? But (laughs) I used to think that God forsook man because we were bad boys and girls, and he, then he had to forsake Jesus so that he could accept us, right? That was my theology. That's how I lived. Well, that caused me a very big problem, right? Because the Bible says that we have the mind of Christ. Well, if I have the mind of Christ and Christ believed he was forsaken by the Father, then doesn't that mean I would also be believing that I was forsaken by the Father? So we come and say Jesus was forsaken by the Father. Then we say we have the mind of Christ. And we wonder why we struggle to see God with us in the midst of darkness. And the whole reason, I mean, the death Jesus died was our death. That wasn't his death. That wasn't his sin. It was ours. And the whole point was so that we could see ourselves there, right? Well, I used to have the Father and the Son separated on the cross. Well, what God first did was he showed me that he was never separated from Jesus, that they were one. On the, on the cross, that the Father was right there with Jesus, loving Jesus, upholding Jesus, interceding in Jesus' heart, right? That the Father was, his face was shining upon Jesus, that his face wasn't hid from him, that he didn't despise Jesus in his affliction. Every time I found myself in sin and death, I had this thing in my heart that made me think that God was despising me, that he thought I was despicable, right? So what God did is he showed me he didn't abandon Jesus, that he was there with Jesus. All of a sudden, that gave me eyes to see God was there with me all of the time. You see, because if you think God wasn't there with Jesus, and you think the cross and the death and the sin is a sign that he wasn't there with Jesus, every time you encounter death and sin, you're also going to think he's not there with you. And the whole point is, you see, he was there with Jesus, and then you start seeing he's there with you all of the time, right? That's what I mean when I say I see Jesus. And so the first thing that happened for me was he, he brought himself there, present at the cross, right? Je- Jesus did cry out, Abba, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Well, you don't cry out to somebody if you don't see him there. Paul says in Romans 8 that we don't have the spirit of fear, again, under bondage, but we have the spirit of adoption, whereby we do what? Cry out, Abba. What did Jesus cry out on the cross? Okay, so did he have the spirit of fear or did he have the spirit of adoption? Okay, so how could he have the spirit of adoption inside of him if, the, if God wasn't with him? Right, it's impossible. Our theology is completely jacked up, right? Jesus himself said in John 12 that everyone's going to scatter for me. It's going to look like I'm alone, but I won't be alone. The Father will be there with me, right? Psalm 22, the famous psalm that starts out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you get down to verse 24, the same guy says, You haven't abhorred the affliction of the afflicted one, neither is your face hid from him, but you hear him when he cries out to you. And then Jesus cries out to God, right? And so that caused me to start seeing. When that theology got blown up, I started seeing God was there at the cross in the midst of all that sin and death. That had a powerful supernatural effect in me where I started seeing God with me everywhere. 
right? The sin and death could no longer tell me God wasn't there because I started seeing God was there with Jesus. Well, Jesus is the Son of Man, and we identify with the Son of Man. We're supposed to see ourselves in Him, and when we see ourselves in Him, He's supposed to discern our life for us. And if I see in Jesus that when He looked like He was the farthest away from life, the farthest away from the Father, the farthest away from everything that was good, and all sin and death was upon Him, but I see He saw the Father there with Him, and that the Father's face wasn't hid from Him. It plants inside of my heart the same word that was in His heart, and that changes my sight. And now I begin seeing the Father with me whenever I feel like the world is nailing me to a cross, right? It gives me eyes to see. The Holy Spirit, that word that manifested there, started interceding in my heart every time I encountered hard times, and I started being very aware that the Father is with me right? Nothing can separate, like Paul said, nothing can separate me from the love of God. Neither peril, neither shipwreck, neither famine, neither sword, right? It's so funny that we teach that something could separate Jesus from the love of God, right? But then we say we're supposed to believe that nothing can separate us. But Jesus is supposed to be the Word of God. And so we teach a word about Jesus that completely contradicts and is the antithesis of what we say we're supposed to believe. And then we don't understand why we struggle to believe that we're not separated from the love of God. Because we've taught confusion. And we've sowed confusion into our hearts. Babel. Right? But that was the first part. I said, oh, he did. the Father didn't forsake the Son. So then that ripped that thought out of my heart. And I started seeing God with me everywhere. Then God did something magnificent that I preach a lot about now that I don't know if people have caught up to the power of it yet. Well, I don't care if they have or not. They will at some point. But... Then, once I was feeling happy, yeah, the the Father's with the Son. The Father's with the Son. Next thing I know, God's like, now that I I have you not seeing us as separate at the cross, now I need you to see that that's me. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Now, that really opened my eyes. Because now I see the Father in the midst of all the sin and death and darkness that had been on mankind. I see Him standing there in the midst of it with us, right? And that started giving me eyes to see Him there, right? Whenever darkness is there. Because darkness tries to be a sign. God's not there. That's why they told Jesus, where's your God now? Right? That's what they were saying to Him. And just so everybody knows, I mean, I say this a lot. I said it in Ireland, but there's probably somebody sitting here just thinking, yeah, but Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so I don't want to leave you just hanging if you're, if you're sitting there thinking that. But Jesus didn't say that out of the blue. He didn't just, out of the blue, because he felt sorrowful, say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? People were telling him that he was forsaken. If you are the son, where's your God now? Let him come for you if he will have you. And so they were tempting Jesus with unbelief. I don't know if you guys realize it. If Jesus actually believed he was forsaken by God, he was in unbelief. That's not faith. That's unbelief. And we're actually described Jesus as a sinner. Because if he wasn't believing on the Father, who was he believing on? And so we've made Jesus out to be a sinner. But Jesus is the just one. He's the righteous one. And the scripture says that the Father, that God, cannot forsake the righteous. The centurion, when Jesus is on the cross and he cries out to the Father, what does he say? Truly, this is a righteous man. But we have the Father forsaking a righteous man? So Jesus didn't say that out of the blue. 
He was responding to the Pharisees telling him that he was forsaken by God. And what he was doing was quoting the word. And that's not the first time we see Jesus doing that when the serpent is trying to tempt Jesus. Because when Jesus was being tempted in the desert and the devil was trying to tempt him to turn the stones into bread to feed himself with life, Jesus also, what did he do to combat the temptation? He quoted the word. He quoted the word. Well, after the Satan left Jesus, it says he left till a more opportune time to tempt him. Do you know when the more opportune time to tempt him was? At the cross, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are your father, the devil. And so the devil was there while Jesus was on the cross trying to tempt Jesus by pointing at the body of death. If you really are God's son, how could you be dying like this? How could you death be upon you if you're really God's son? If God's really there with you, if the father really loves you, how could this be happening to you? Look at you. And he was tempting Jesus to believe he was all alone. Because if Jesus would have believed he was all alone, do you know what he would have done? He would have come down off the cross. He would have tried to clothe himself, just like the first man Adam did. So Jesus had to enter into the same nakedness and sin and death that the first man Adam was in, and he had to believe something different than the first man Adam in order to blow up the lie, in order to overcome sin and death. Do you know what the first man Adam believed? That the father wasn't there. That the father wasn't with him to clothe him. That's why he tried to clothe himself. He thought he was forsaken by God. He couldn't comprehend God there with him. And so he started trying to clothe himself. Well, Jesus comes as the last man, Adam. And it says, by the righteousness of one man, Jesus. What righteousness? That when the same sin and death that was upon the first man, Adam, came upon him, he didn't try to clothe himself. Do you know what he did? He comprehended God with him. And then he called out to the Father so that the Father could clothe him. That's the righteousness of one man, Jesus. He wasn't righteous because of the miracles he performed. He wasn't righteous because he loved perfectly or he did those things perfectly. He was righteous because he trusted in the Father to raise him from the dead. Psalm 16 says, You have not suffered your Holy One to see corruption. Neither will you leave his soul in hell. Mm -hmm. Sounds like faith to me. Mm -hmm. Sounds like Jesus prophesying about the cross. And so Jesus quotes Psalm 22 to those guys because he's quoting the word to combat them telling him he's been forsaken, right? That's what he's doing. Well, if you know anything about ancient Hebrews and what they think about the Psalms, the Psalm was a song. Now imagine Yolanda plays that song and after the first line, she turns it off. That would be very strange because we wouldn't have heard the whole song, the whole thought. So a Psalm is a song. When you quote in in Hebrew, when you quote the first line of a psalm, you're declaring the whole psalm. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're pointing to. And every single Hebrew person there would have known the whole psalm. And you know what that psalm describes? A guy on the cross. And do you know what that psalm says when it gets down to verse 24? It says, He has not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted one, neither is his face hid from him, but he hears him when he cries out to him. That's Jesus. Then that's when we see Jesus say, Abba, right? And so if you think the Father has forsaken the Son, then you will never see the Father with you in the midst of your darkness. You won't. You'll struggle. You'll struggle. I mean, Isaiah 53, you know what Isaiah 53 says? Isaiah 53 says that we, as it were, hid our faces from Him. Go and read Psalm 53 doesn't say that God hid his face from him. It says we hid our faces from him. And then it says we esteemed him smitten and stricken by God. 
but we were the ones that hid our faces from him. We were the ones that smote him. It wasn't God that flogged him to death. Do you think the Spirit of God was in the centurions flogging Jesus? But that's how we've described the Father. And we wonder why we struggle to be vulnerable with Him. We wonder why we struggle to let our hearts just be plopped open on the table. We've allowed ourselves to be taught things about the Father that we'd all say to throw a human father in jail for doing those kinds of things. And we wonder why we struggle to trust. And so Isaiah 53 says that Jesus carried our griefs and our sorrows. What that means is, is we were filled with hatred and envy and gossip and backbiting because we were taken captive by death. Satan was like our taskmaster. He was like our Pharaoh, and he was whipping us into a frenzy. And because of that, we smote and struck Jesus. We hid our faces from him. Jesus ended up on the cross, not because the Father rejected him. It's because we rejected him. And then, just like a good little Adam boy will do, just like a good little carnal mind will do, we blame the Father. We did it, and then we blame the Father. Because we want to feel justified. We've actually been teaching the serpent. The serpent's message about the cross in the world. I just have to say it as radically as I can. It's actually heresy. It's actually heresy to teach that. And you don't have to take my word for it. The Nicene Council met in 325 A.D. to discuss whether or not Jesus was God. And do you know what they decided? It's heresy to say Jesus isn't God. He is the self-same substance of the Father, true God from true God, light from light. So if you have a theology that paints Jesus as anything other than God, any time in his life, it's heresy. And so if you have Jesus on the cross and you don't see God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, then you've been taught a theology that is heresy, right? And that heresy will leave you struggling to see God there with you, right? That's the thing that changed for me. I see God in the midst of my darkness all the time now. And you know what it's done? It's put me to rest. You know what it's done? I feel embraced. I feel lovingly embraced, and I never used to. Right? And he ripped up that theology, and it gave me eyes to see the same thing Jesus did. See, Paul said we live by the faith of the Son of God. Right? The faith of the Son of God is the faith that was in his heart. Well, if we come and say his faith is that the Father forsook him, that's how we're going to see life every time we encounter death and darkness. Right? Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. Right? I mean, we, we have Jesus walking. I'm sorry to keep saying this, but it actually makes no sense to teach that. And trust me, I lived my whole life thinking it made a lot of sense. But it's called traditions. Do you know what makes sense to us? Traditions. But what did Jesus say about traditions? They make the word of God of none effect. Do you know what you can't find one time? I, I talk about this, but people don't understand how to interpret the scriptures. But you have the gospels, okay? And then you have the apostolic letters. Paul said that the the church was founded on the apostles and the prophets. That means the doctrine that they taught. The apostolic letters are the doctrine of the church that the church is supposed to be built on, right? How many times do you see one of the apostles saying in one of their letters anywhere that Jesus was forsaken by the Father? How many times do you see them say that? Zero. Zero. How many times do you see them say that the wrath of the Father was poured out on the Son? In any of the apostolic letters, how many times do you see that there? Zero. Yet we've built our whole atonement theory on it. And you don't have one of the apostles writing that 
anywhere in any of their letters. Right? Not once. Not one time. That's a problem. We've made Calvin. We've made John Calvin our apostle. We've made Augustine our apostle. You know what else you can't find? You can go read the early church fathers. All the way up to Augustine, you can't find a single one of them saying that the father forsook the son. Right around the time Augustine comes in is when you start seeing that being taught. Right? So if you struggle to see God with you when things are going wrong, when you're encountering hard times or darkness, it's because you've been taught things about Jesus and the faith of God that leaves you in the place where you're alone. But God came to blow that up. He came to blow that up. We actually have Jesus as the one being bruised by the Father. We read Psalm 53, and we read that it says that it pleased the Father for Jesus to be bruised, and then we think that means the Father was the run bruising Jesus. Well, do you know in Genesis 3, God, God, I say this all the time, people get upset. We don't get to decide. You don't get to decide who bruised Jesus. I don't get to decide who bruised Jesus. None of us get to decide. Do you know why? Because God said in Genesis 3 who would bruise Jesus. And do you know who he said would bruise Jesus? The seed of the serpent. He said the seed of woman will come and you will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. So who was the seed of the serpent? The Pharisees. And what were they doing? Bruising Jesus. And we, as it were, hid our faces from him and said that it was the Father. Right? So if you struggle to see God with you in the darkness, that's why. And what will heal your sight is to start seeing that the Father was with Jesus. Right? And then after your sight, your sight is healed about seeing the Father was with Jesus, then you'll start seeing that is the Father dwelling in the midst of all that darkness and chaos. What it will do is it will sow a word in, into your heart. The parable of the sower sowing the seed. The sower went out and the sower sowed the seed. What did the sower sow? The sower sowed the word. When you start to see that's the Father himself, yeah. In the midst of my sin and death, you start to see him there with you in the midst of hard times everywhere you go. And that starts sowing the word into you that God is with me, right? That's the whole purpose of Jesus coming, Emmanuel, God with us. The problem was we didn't see God with us. Why? Because of death and darkness. So Jesus came to blow that up so that we could see God with us in the midst of our death and our darkness. So we conclude that Jesus was forsaken by God. Look. The Father, God, hid his face from him. And then do you know what happens? The Father shows up and raises him from the dead. (laughs) And then, yeah, I mean, that's one of the biggest changes in my life. That I used to try to work my faith to straighten out my life to where I never had hard times. Right? That's what I, I tried to do. And I thought that would be the power into feeling the fruit of the Spirit. But then what God did is He sowed this word I just described into my heart. And that did something much more powerful. And it sounds weird to the carnal mind. And what I want to say is it sounds like foolishness to the, to the wisdom of the world. And there was a time in my life where I would have thought it sounded like foolishness. But what I see now is in the midst of hard times and things going wrong, I feel so lovingly embraced by the Father that I couldn't care less about the hard times. They melt away. 
in the presence of the Father. Your hard times cannot abide the presence of the Father, right? Whatever sin or weakness or death or lack tries to come against your life, I promise you it cannot abide the presence of the Father. In this revelation, the Word that was made flesh in Jesus, it comes to open your eyes and open your ears to the presence of the Father and His voice saying to you right in the middle of hard times, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You are my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. And all of a sudden, you feel this warm embrace and you feel loved by God and all of the darkness is sent away from you because it can't abide the presence of His life. Right? And that's much more powerful. I, I mean, I'm just going to, it's much more powerful than having things go right. It is because even when things are going right, you're living in fear of when they're going to go wrong again. <laughs> right? And I mean, listen, there's so many things that can go wrong in this world. And, and if every time something gets sideways or goes crooked, you're, you're, you're feeling agitated and annoyed and, and you're feeling like you don't have life and your life is being harmed and, and all those kinds of things, that's a, that's a cursed life, actually. That's a cursed life. Our, my dear brother in Ireland, Cahal, he, man, we were just talking, and uh, I love that guy. He says, I learned not to be annoyed by life. <laughs> <laughs> right? I've learned not to be annoyed by life. And they said, no, wait, wait. He said, rather, I learned not to be annoyed by death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And the only thing that can cause you not to be annoyed by death or lack. Death is not just, I'll end up in a coffin one day, right? Not breathing in this this mortal body. Death has symptoms, right? And anytime you think you lack life, that is a symptom of death, right? And that's what death tries to communicate to us. Anytime you think you're separated from some good thing you need for life, that's a symptom of death. That's the serpent's system trying to sting your heart. And what it's trying to do to you is the same thing it tried to do to Jesus. Look at this, look at this death, look at this sin, look at this corruption, look what's happening to your life. Look at the decay, look at the rust, look at the harm that's coming to your life. It must be a sign God's not there. Because if we say Jesus on the cross, if that's a sign God's not there, then surely this is a sign God's not with you. And that's what he tries to use to tempt us to believe God's not there. That's the temptation common to man, right? It talks about the temptation common to man in the letter to the Hebrews, and it talks about Jesus being tempted every which way we were tempted. We think that temptation is that I could be tempted to lay with another woman. That's not temptation. Do you think Jesus was tempted to lay with a woman? Can that even be temptation? If Jesus thought about laying with the woman, wouldn't that make him a sinner? Because Jesus said, if you thought about doing it, you've already done it. Didn't he? But then we describe temptation for us as something like that. Well, that's the fruit have, have already been tempted, right? The temptation common to man is that we're in a world where death and infirmity and weakness is. And that weakness, that infirmity, the, the horrible things that can happen to us, the things people can do to us, the things people can say to us, they're trying to tempt us to believe we're separated from some good thing we need for life, and therefore we must be separated from God in that moment. Because if we think we're separated from God or something we need for life, do you know what we're going to be compelled to do, even if we don't want to? Try to gather life to ourselves. 
Just like the first man, Adam, try to clothe yourself with life. Try to heal yourself from hurt. Try to heal yourself from pain. Try to keep your heart from ever being hurt again. Try to, all the things we try to do to keep ourselves from feeling the harm. All of those things are a result of having not seen God with us there in the midst of the assault coming against our life. Right? Does anybody want to jump in about that? And do you want to ask further? Does that make sense to you? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. We we've thought of faith as our belief, mm-hmm. right? And we we do believe, but faith. When Paul said we live by faith and not by sight, he's not talking about we live by our belief. Although we will believe, he's talking about we live by the faith that was revealed in Jesus Christ, which faith is that God is with us in the midst of our sin and our death. The psalmist also said, David, a man after God's own heart, what did he say? Even should I make my bed in hell, you are with me there, O Lord. Right? He's a man after God's own heart. He saw what was in God's heart. He saw God was with him. When he went off and laid with Bathsheba and brought all that death and destruction into his house and the little son, the little boy that was conceived was dying, that's when he said that. And you can go read about David and what he brought to his house. And after he he prays and after the death comes, the sorrow leaves and he starts going on about how God will raise him up. Right? He sees God is there with him in the midst of the death. And that's really all we need in life is to know God was there, right? That's it. All the moments in your life where you think you suffered harm, you should talk to God and ask Him to show you how He was there and how He sealed you from the harm. Because that's how, we like to call it strongholds. That's how strongholds get planted in our hearts. Trauma happens. The devil convinces us God wasn't there, right? And then our hearts swoop into action trying to deal with the hurt we feel, right? Instead of seeing the presence of the Father, instead of seeing His life there, instead of seeing He shepherded us, instead of seeing He sealed us, right? Which would immediately send away the sting. Because it isn't actually what happens to us, it's what we think about what happened to us that is the problem, right? And if you see the Father there, you see His presence there, you see His life there, that will cause your heart to be kept from the trauma from forming false beliefs about trauma, hurt, offense, pain, things people say to you, things people do to you, all of that, right? That's when you don't care. I mean, if someone does something to me, well, glory to God, they can't harm my life, right? I don't think someone can harm my life. I no longer think that they can take from me, right? Because I realize whose life I have. And when I weigh it in the balance, I think, well, can they hurt the Father's life? No. Can they take from Him? No. Well, whose life do I have? Right? That will also help you to see God with you. The reason we call Father, God Father, isn't just a warm, fuzzy feeling. Right? It means something when you call someone Father. Like, I love John. Right? And I've only got to be with him a few days, but I like that guy. Right? I really like him. But I would never call him father, right? Because my life hasn't come from him. So when I call my dad, whose name is Larry, father, the reason why I'm calling him father is because my life has come forth from him. So it tells me something about my life, that it's come forth from him. I can think back to today, 
we were talking about how I have some Indian in me, some American Indian, not India the country, but I have some Blackfoot Indian in me. Well, where do you think I got that from? I got that from my dad, who's part Blackfoot Indian. I also have some Irish in me. I got that from my dad, right? And so when I think about my father and I think about him, I think about how my life has come from him. And because it's come from him, it has these certain attributes, right? Well, when Jesus called God Father, it wasn't just like a warm, fuzzy thing he was talking about, although it's also that. But the main thing he was talking about is the life I have, even in this earthen vessel, has come from above. And if you think your life has come from above, that starts telling you all the time God is with you. It starts ministering to your heart, even should death come. You, but I have the life of God. God himself is in me. And that keeps your heart from trauma. It keeps your heart from being tossed to and fro by every tempest, by every storm. It keeps your heart from offense. That's what sends offense away from your heart when people do things that harm you. The only reason why we feel offended when people do things that hurt us is because we think they hurt our life. We think they stole something from us. They tore down our reputation, our good name. They disrespected us. Who cares if someone's disrespected you if you have an incorruptible life? The only reason why you care if someone's disrespected you is because you're busy thinking that their disrespect can hurt your life, that you could gain something if they would respect you, right? If they would honor you, you could gain something. Listen, man, you can't gain anything from someone respecting you if you have the life of God. You can't lose anything if someone disrespects you if you have the life of God. And so it strengthens you on the inside, should that happen. It's not that you feel happy about it. No one wants a person to disrespect them. But it's sent away from your heart immediately, where you're not twisting on it. You're not dwelling on it. You're not defining yourself by it. You're not defining them by it. And it doesn't start shaping your heart in future relationships, in future situations. You're free from it, right? Why? Because my life is from above, right? And I don't need respect to have life. The Father has respected me. It's good to desire respect, but the only respect that can satisfy your desire to be respected is God respecting you by giving you His life. And He has respected you. And He has given you His life. And now that keeps me from that kind of a thing. Do you see how that works? And so it means something when we call God Father. It isn't just an identity thing. We've gotten into this identity teaching, which is very nice. It was very nice because for so long we thought we were ugly to God because of our sin. And so the identity thing was very nice because all of a sudden we could start to believe we're beautiful to God. And it's a nice thing to know you're beautiful to God. It'll actually, actually get you close enough to God in order to hear what He's trying to tell you. But what He's trying to tell you is that the life you have, even in this earthen vessel, is His life. And we let these earthen vessels con confuse us all the time because we think these earthen vessels can be harmed. We think these earthen vessels need all kinds of things to have a good go of it, right? And those earthen vessels confuse us about the substance of our life. And it tries to convince us that the substance of our life is earthy, which means it can be corrupted, which means it needs all these things to be upheld, right? But our life is of a heavenly substance. It's come forth from the loins of God himself. And so when we call God Father, just like I know, well, I'm part Blackfoot Indian. I'm part Irish. I have some German and some French in me because I see I come from my father. We should be thinking of, well, what kind of life does the father have? And what does that mean that his life is my life? That will comfort you in the midst of things going awry. It will. It will comfort you. You know what it will convince you? That 
the warfare has been accomplished. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith the Lord. Tell them their warfare has been accomplished. The, the enemy isn't God. That's why the forsaken message is from the pit of hell. Because we actually have God as the one warring against us. Right? And now we think we need to be delivered from God. But God's not Pharaoh. And he never was Pharaoh. And we painted him in the image of Pharaoh. So the Bible never says that God was our enemy. It says our understanding was darkened because of death. And then we set ourselves up as God's enemy. And then God came and we nailed him to a cross. Right? But the warfare, Paul said, death is the enemy. Do you know what's warring against us? Death. Where does death come from? Sin. Sin the belief, not sin the action. Sin the action is death. Right? Hatred is the fruit of death. Envy is the fruit of death. None of those things are sin. Those things are the works that come forth should a person dwell in sin, which is unbelief in the goodness of God towards their life to raise them up out of the miry clay and to be faithful to them even when they're not faithful. Right? That's the righteousness of God. We actually come and describe the righteousness of God as if the righteousness of God is that He punishes sinners. I'm just going to say it out loud, and I say it out loud making fun of myself. I'm the chief of that kind of a guy that believed that. That's just stupid. <laughs> it's, and none of us should feel ashamed. We're not the ones that created it. The carnal mind created it, and the carnal mind is stupid, and the carnal mind needs to be torn down because it's the carnal mind that can't comprehend God with us in the middle of all the, the darkness. And that's what leaves us all the time struggling. Where's God? I need to know God. I need to see God. Well, it's because we've described God in a way that makes us blind. It doesn't take a righteous person to punish sinners. This world is punishing sinners every day. Satan punishes sinners. Sin carries within itself the punishment of death. It says the wages of sin is death. It doesn't need help from God. When Adam brought death in the world, if God would have just zoomed back like that and taken his hands off, everything would have capitulated on itself. But we got God helping sin and out. We actually have God and sin working together to punish people. And we think that makes sense. We, we, God is a just God. And we don't even understand what justice is to God. We describe God's justice like the justice that's in this world. You have to first understand what God desired for his life with man before you can describe what God would think is just and unjust. Do you know what God wanted for you? That you would live and never die. So do you know what he thinks is unjust? If you're dying. So do you know what his idea of justice is? To come and deliver you from death. That's his idea of justice. We say all these horrible things that we're not worthy of love. Right? God doesn't love you because you're lovable. He loves you because he's love. Now imagine I tell my wife that. Listen, Becky, you're not lovable, but I love you because I'm love. Now, do you think my wife will ever feel loved? No. You see how ridiculous it sounds when I say it like that, right? But we've said these things about God. And we don't understand the, the crookedness it's, it's brought to our hearts. And then we feel bad when we struggle to, to feel loved, right? We struggle to feel loved. God determined you were worthy of love before you did anything right or wrong. 
Do you know what that means? Whether you do something right or wrong can't now change whether he thinks you're lovable because he decided you were lovable before you could do anything right or wrong, right? So your bad works can't now change whether he thinks you're lovable. So you do deserve to be loved by God. But God's idea of deserving, you deserving his love has nothing to do with works. And we've come and mixed our works in with it, right? We describe our, whether we're lovable by our works. God never saw it that way. Right? The righteousness of God is that he comes and picks us up out of the miry clay. The righteousness of God is that he lays down his life for sinners. The righteousness of God is that he justifies the ungodly. That's what makes him righteous. That's what the world would never do. Right? You start thinking like this about God, you start becoming aware of his presence. Right? Because the world has tried to give you a belief about God that makes it impossible for you to experience His presence. The gospel actually is designed to come and remove all the false things you've been given. All the false words that world has, the world has tried to give. And oh, that religion and churchianity has tried to give. And it ought not surprise us because the Apostle Paul said that the messengers of Satan described themselves or uh, cloaked themselves as messengers of light. Angels of light. And so we've been taught things in the name of God. And those things have made it nearly impossible for us to experience the presence of God. And the gospel would come to remove all that and sanctify God's image in our heart, which is what the new heart is. The new heart is not God thinks your heart is despicable and ugly and you have a sin nature. And now he's got to try and come give you a new heart so you don't have a sin nature. The stony heart is a heart that's hardened to God's goodness towards you. The stony heart is a heart that God's image has been marred because you're judging whether or not God loves you by the sin and death you see in the earth. And that's called living by the knowledge of good and evil, where you know life is good and you know death is evil. And if you see death there, you begin judging yourself and you start judging God by the death you see there. And so that death was dwelling in our hearts. It was painting an image of God, it was marring God's image in our heart to the degree that we even say he forsook the Son. That's how marred God's image was. And if you want to know how marred God's image was in our heart, behold what we did to God when he came into the earth to save us and we flogged him to death and nailed him to a tree. That's God on the cross. That's the crucified God. That's the image we had of God in our hearts, full of death, full of darkness. And we wonder why we couldn't trust that God. Can you mention one of the texts in the scripture where you can read? You mentioned one of them. Which one? Psalm. Psalm 16. Psalm 22. Psalm 16. Which one are you talking about? Which words did I use? <laughs> well, you can go back and listen to it, and you can message me, right? If you don't remember the phrase, I don't know which psalm you're talking about. If you remember part of the phrase, then I can either look it up or I'll just remember the psalm. Do you don't remember any part of it? But you don't remember any part of the words that I spoke. Right? Uh, that's a known version. Uh, 
That's Psalm 22 that begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's at verse 24 where it starts to say, um, Psalm 139, that's probably the one I didn't quote. Every other one I quoted the number, but probably this one I didn't quote the number. Psalm 139.8 is the one that says, If I make my bed in hell, hell, behold, thou art there. That's Psalm 139.8. All the other Psalms, Psalm 22, Psalm 16. Those are the three. I want to try to help you. Was it the one where I said, you, you have not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted one, neither is your face hid from him, but you hear him when he cries out to you? Yeah, listen and message me if you can't find it, and I'll tell you. But now we'll be on there. Psalm 139, Psalm 16, and Psalm 22, I'm pretty sure are the only Psalms that I uh, quoted. Right? But if you want to know where you can go read about the righteousness of God, I'm going to say this again. We don't get to decide what makes God righteous. Do you know why? Because the Scripture says what makes God righteous. So we don't get to read it into it. You can go read Psalm 40, and it describes what makes God righteous. And do you know what it says about why it makes God righteous? Because He picked me up out of the miry clay. And it talks about the faithfulness of God to pick us up out of the miry clay. That's what makes God righteous, that He's faithful towards us. When Noah was a preacher of righteousness, do you know what Noah was telling all the people? God's heard our cries. God's grieved at our suffering. And He's going to cleanse the earth from death. But He doesn't want any of us to die and perish with the death that's going to to perish. So He has me building this ark so we can be pitched within and without by the ark. That's what Noah was telling the people. We think a preacher of righteousness is somebody that goes and stands on the corner and tells people they're going to hell Mm -hmm. and that God hates them. No, that's that's the serpent's message. The, The preacher of righteousness is declaring God's righteousness to save us from sin and death. His goodness to save us from sin and death. That's what causes a person to call upon the name of the Lord. Any of those people could have got on that ark. All they had to do was believe, right? And they could have gotten on that ark. Any of them could have gotten on that ark. And it's like what John says in John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, right? That all those who believe on Him wouldn't perish. It says God, long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. It says that Noah, when God had Noah build the ark, it says it would take 120 years for Noah to build the ark. That is the manifestation of God being long-suffering, not desiring that any should perish. Noah built that ark for 120 years, and you know what he was declaring to all the people? God wants to save us from our suffering. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Peter comes and describes the flood. We say that the flood killed all those people. When you read what Peter says about the flood, do you know what Peter says? Peter says that Noah and the eight were saved by the flood, not saved from the flood. Saved by the flood. Do you know what water is a sign of? A cleansing. A baptism. A baptism of what? Life. A cleansing. A cleansing of what? Death. 
And so God was going to cleanse the earth from the death that was stinging people's hearts, that was causing their imaginations to be filled with labors and annoyances, where they're all the time trying to gather life to themselves. And because of that, they were filled with covetousness. And you could have a guy that's living, and he looks over because he's filled with covetousness, and he sees, my neighbor's wife is very nice looking. If only I had a wife like her, then I could have the life I need the peace and love and joy I need. And so then he would go kill the guy to take his wife. God was grieved that he saw that in the earth. And God said, we're going to cleanse the earth from death. It's the same thing God's going to do at the end. He's going to baptize the earth in his life to cleanse it from death. That's why it says death is cast into the lake of fire because he's cleansing the earth from death, right? That's what Noah was talking about. It doesn't say Noah would be 120 years when the flood came. You want to go read the scripture a little more closely. It says there'll be 120 years from this day before the flood comes. That's what it's talking about. Right? Do you have any questions about something I said outside of the psalm? Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> does, does anybody else have any questions about what I just said? God romances our stony heart. and See, you want to stop thinking we had a sin nature and now we had to have our sin nature taken away. Right? That language isn't used in the Bible actually. It's not in any of the Pauline letters. That's not the problem. The problem is death entered the earth. Death began marring the image of God to us. We started thinking God was the one giving us the death. We started thinking God was the one accusing us. In fact, we started thinking that God was the thief who steals, kills, and destroys. And that caused us to harden our hearts to Him. You can't have a soft heart to someone you think that's hurting you. Ladies, you know that real good. How soft do you feel towards a guy that you think's hurting you? Are you like letting that guy in? Or are you like building up walls? Are you hardening your heart to them? Right? Well, didn't Jesus come and say in John 8 that it's the thief who steals, kills, and destroys? But when I am come, I am come to give you life and life more abundantly? John 10. Yeah. And right after that, in John 8, what was Je- that's right after in John 8. What did Jesus do in John 8? Did he accuse the woman caught in adultery? Did he condemn her to death? Who was the one condemning her to death? Who were the Pharisees? The seed of the serpent. And there they were accusing the woman. There they were condemning her of death. There they were the thief that steals, kills, and destroys. And they were doing it in the name of God. But there's a big problem now because Jesus is God. So they were describing God as the one that steals, kills, and destroys. But in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's John chapter 1. And the Word was made flesh so that we could behold the glory of the Father. Mm -hmm. So that we could see 
that the Father's not the thief that steals, kills, and destroys, but that we could see the Father is the one who justifies. He's the one who heals. He's the one that justifies. He's the one that stands and defends our name. And then there's Jesus standing in the temple. He's God. And what did he do? What did, neither do I condemn you. Woman, where are your accusers? None, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Then Jesus walks off and heals the blind guy. Right after. Do you know what he just did in the midst of that temple? He healed all their blindness about God. The woman caught in the act of adultery, she also thought God wasn't with her. But there's God right in the midst of it with her. And there he is cleansing the temple. We're the temple. Do you know how God cleansed us? He cleansed our heart from the marred image we had of him. Whereas Satan came and got it right to punish us with death, to serve us with tribulation, and he got it right to convince us it was God right? And God come and cleansed our temple by cleansing his image in our heart, by showing himself as the friend of sinners. Oh, thank you. That's the, it's more like a romancing thing when you think about a new heart, right? When I started dating Becky, she had lived through a lot of suffering and pain, abusive relationships before me. And so she wasn't just like, you know, here, you want in? She's like, you know, scrutinizing me, looking me up and down, scoping me out. Can I trust this guy? I don't know if I can. Right? Her heart was stony because she didn't know if she could trust me with her life. You see, and there was a courting that went on, right? I was wooing her. I was persuading her that there's only goodness in my heart towards her. I was persuading her that I would never harm her life. I was persuading her that I only had good intentions towards her. And through the course of doing that, I gave her a new heart. I gave her a heart that was soft to me. And then her heart let me in, right? That's what God does with our hearts. Because the sin and death in the earth painted him in an image that made us harden our hearts to him. We didn't think we could give our lives over into his arms because we thought he was the one stealing, killing, and destroying us, right? And he comes, and what he does is he reveals himself to be the good Samaritan and not the thief. And when we see he's the good Samaritan and not the thief, he's not the one that leaves us bloody and beaten on the side of the road. He's the one that when he finds us bloody and beaten, he picks us up, he fills us with the wine of his life. He makes a place for us to dwell with him for all eternity. And now all of a sudden that brings down the stony heart we have and we have a heart of flesh. It's a heart softened to his goodness towards us. And now we live all of our days seeing that his goodness is chasing us down to pamper us with life. Right? It's a wooing. Again, back to what we talked about last night with relationships. We see that in human relationships, and we're like, yeah, right? I mean, isn't that what courting's about? The man is trying to convince the woman he'll only ever be good to her? He'll lay down his life for her? That he'd rather die than let something bad happen to her? That he prefers her life over his own? That he'll live all his days serving her? He'll live all his days loving her with all of his heart, his soul, and his strength? That's what we say happens. We call it romance. That's how he wins her heart. Well, that's what Ezekiel's talking about. That's how God wins our hearts. That's the way it works, right? 
That's why God come and tell Adam, who told you you were naked? It wasn't me. Well, Adam was thinking God was the one pointing at his nakedness, accusing him. That's why he was hiding from God. That's why he was filled with fear and shame. He had a stony heart. His heart was hardened towards God's love for him. That's why he didn't call upon God. That's why he couldn't comprehend God there with him to love him. And so then what does God do? God comes and romances him by doing what? Clothing him in the lamb. And now he sees, oh, God's not the punisher. God's the healer. God's not the accuser. He's the justifier. Oh. Now his heart's soft. And he, he, he gives his life over into God's arms. You can't actually give your life over into someone's arms if you think they possess the ability to harm it. You can't. It's not possible. Even in relationships, if you're with somebody and they've done something at some point to hurt you, really hurt you, it becomes extremely difficult to ever just give yourself over into their arms. You start feeling like you have to guard against pain. You start feeling like you have to protect, right? It builds up walls. That's a stony heart. We've described God in a way that makes it nearly impossible for us to give our our lives over into his arms, right? where we're always watching with a, a suspicious eye. Isn't that Elvis that sings that song? <laughs> I might be wrong, but I think it is. What do you guys think? Any questions about any of that? I love the group that you guys have here. I was thinking about it today. It's, it's just really nice to be here with you all, right? And to, to be able to talk with you all and to see the, the camaraderie you guys have with each other where you feel safe with one another. And it's, it's not always that you have a place where you can go and be safe and you can let down your guard and you can plop your heart out on the table, um, especially in a group. It's a powerful thing to be healed individually. It's a very powerful thing to be healed together in a group and to grow together in a group um, up into the Lord, right? It's, it's no common thing. It's nothing that you should just count as a common thing and take it for granted. It's a powerful thing that you guys have a place where you can all come together, right? And you can be ministered to one another and you can grow in a relationship with each other and you, your walls can come down and you can all plop your heart out on the table knowing that there's no trickery or deceit or guile in anyone, 
right? That your heart is precious and that your heart is cherished because it's in that place where these walls can come down that there can be intimacy, where you can know and be known. The deepest desire of every human is to be known, to be seen, to be fully seen, to be fully known, and to be embraced, right? That's what we all desire. And it's a, it's a hard thing in today's world to find that in a church or a, a Christian group or any of that, right? And I see it here. And it's a real blessing because when those, when those walls can come down, you guys can grow together and grow up in the love of God and be healed, right, along the road together, right? And it, it becomes a powerful thing that you can do that. And so I just encourage everybody, um, if, man, if you're not coming to the group, you should ask God and yourself, why not? And maybe you have a good reason. Maybe you live far away. But if you're not coming to the group, you should ask yourself, why not? If you are coming to the group, man, recognize, if you haven't, the treasure that's here and really give yourselves over into it, right? Like last night, we talked about God. And really what we did last night is we plopped God's heart out on the table, right? We, un- we just unleashed it. There it is. Bam. God made himself vulnerable to us, right? And the reason why he plops his heart out on the table in our presence, the reason why he makes himself vulnerable to us is so that he brings something forth in us where we feel safe and then we do it. Plop. And we come with an unconcealed heart, right? We, we feel okay being vulnerable, right? And because it's in that moment of vulnerability, none of us really want to be vulnerable, right? It's a difficult thing to be vulnerable, but it's in that place of vulnerability with God where you let your walls come down, that you're giving him free access into your heart, right? To really start working in your heart and to really start massaging it and showing himself to you, right? And that's what's beautiful when you can do that. Pop your. That's what I did. That's what I've been doing the whole time I'm here. I don't just come here to, to talk to you about doctrines, and I don't just come here to impart some spiritual gift to you. I come here to be known. I come here to have friends. But I don't just come here to be known by you. What the hope is, and me bearing my soul to you all and telling you all about the deepest things I've gone through, the deepest hurts and pains I've felt, you see me with my walls come down, that you guys would also, bam, right? And now... To know and be known. That's how you have a body that can be knit together in love, right? Where those walls can come down. So I do that so people can feel safe. I can let my walls down. I can be myself. It's a safe place. We want safe places. We, we want safe places. The younger generation, I don't know how it is here, but in the States at all the universities, they're so fearful of their lives being harmed. They're so fearful of what can happen to them and what can hurt them that they even make up places on the universities called safe spaces. We want a safe space. We want a place where we're we're going to be embraced and we're not going to be rejected. We're not going to be criticized. We're not going to be scrutinized right? That's safe space. The only safe space is God, right? And you come together as a body to first see you're safe with God. You're in Him. He's in you. You're in His presence. And so you are safe, right? I haven't met any of you all. I've talked to Marika online, Mm -hmm. but we've never met. I've met Yolanda one time. 
in the States. And I have a good, I have a good understanding of who Yolanda is through interacting through church. I've never met John, right? But do you know what made me safe here? God. I'm safe in Him. Everywhere I go, I'm safe. Everywhere I go, I'm protected. Everywhere I go, I'm in His presence. His presence is in me. I'm sealed. Nothing could hurt me. Even if I come up in here and all of you reject me, all of you curse the day I was born, I'm still safe. Even should you take my suitcases and put them in the backyard and burn them up, I'm still safe. And so that safety that you have in the Lord, you first have it in the Lord and you see that and it allows you to come together with a group of people and it allows you to plop your heart down on the table because you feel safe, right? And all the walls come down and then people can really know you and then they're going to plop their heart down on the table and you can really know them and then intimacy can be born and then you can share with each other the things that have tried to destroy your life and then you can encourage each other in the life that you have that can't be destroyed. And you can start reminding each other that yes, trauma has tried to come against your life, but trauma can't corrupt your life because your life comes from the Father. You don't have to be afraid of the trauma. The Father is with you. The Father is in you. You don't have to live your life always thinking of the trauma, always trying to protect yourself from the trauma, always thinking that your life is being hurt. You can come together and see that God has given you a life that can't be harmed, that God has given you a life that's always safe, that God is the shepherd of your life and He has shepherded your life. He has shepherded your life. He is shepherding your life. He shall shepherd your life. You see, in the things of the world, has tried to convince us that we're like lambs being led away to the slaughter. Do you know a lamb can't be led away to the slaughter unless they don't have a shepherd? Because if they have a shepherd, the shepherd is never letting the lamb be led away to the slaughter. It's preventing it. Well, we've gone through this life and things have happened to all of us. Some of us, some horrible things have happened to. Probably all of us. Some horrible things have happened. And do you know what those things have tried to tell us? That we're like lambs being led away to a slaughter. That we're sheep without a shepherd. That we don't have anyone that has protected our life. That we're not safe. That we haven't been kept that God himself didn't protect our lives, that he wasn't with us, that he didn't shield us, he didn't keep us from what was happening, but he has. Right? He is the shepherd. He is the sheepfold. He is the door. Jesus described the sheepfold. And he described himself as the good shepherd. And he said, he's the door and the sheepfold. And he's the good shepherd. Do you know what a sheepfold is? You guys got sheep around here. Have you guys seen a sheepfold? It's like a big stone wall, like a barricade. And there's one door. There's one way in and there's one way out. And the shepherd brings the sheep and hedges them about in the sheepfold. And then the shepherd puts his rod and his staff above the door, blocking the door. And he even sleeps in the door. So when Jesus says he is the door, he's talking about, I am the one that protect you from the wolves. I am the one that keep you from the thieves and the robbers. I am the one that has shepherded your life. I have hedged your life about with the life I have in myself. He is the good shepherd. That's what he's talking about. You've never been a lamb led away to the slaughter. Whatever trauma or harm has tried to come to your life, it's not a sign that you were a lamb without a shepherd. 
It doesn't mean God wasn't there. That's why we whack down all that stuff about the Father forsaking the Son. Do you know the Bible says Jesus looked to the shepherd and bishop of his soul? He looked to the one who could save him. That changed my life for me because I thought that I was alone. I thought I didn't have a shepherd. And when I thought that, my mind became consumed with all the bad things that happened to me. And then I lived in darkness, right? I dwelled, I called it melancholy and the infinite sadness. Where all you can think about is all the harm that's come to your life. And that's all you're thinking about. All you're also thinking about is how you're going to keep your life from harm. Now you're trying to be your own shepherd. Right? Mm -hmm. And now you're trying to hedge about yourself. And you build up walls. You keep people out. You don't let people know you. You only let them in so far. Mm -hmm. Right? Lest they harm you. Lest they hurt you. Lest they steal from you. Lest they try to destroy you. And now you're living in the earth contrary to even your design. Mm -hmm. Where you're not able to be known and you're not knowing people. Mm -hmm. It's a cursed life. I think it's, is it Mark 6 or is it Matthew 9? Let me see. This, I th oh, it's both Matthew 9 and Mark 6. You know, when it talks about sheep, sheep aren't dumb. That's not what, that's not what it means to be a sheep. To, mean a, to be a sheep means to be helpless. It means you're unable to protect yourself from wolves. You're unable to protect yourself from thieves and robbers. And so it means you need someone that does that for you, right? And so in, in, in Matthew 9, it's talking about Jesus. It says, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. And that's what happens to a sheep when it doesn't have a shepherd guarding it. It wanders about. Right? And it ends up getting lost and going far away and not knowing what's going on. Well, Jesus said he saw mankind was like that because they were a sheep not having a shepherd. But then Jesus saw in himself he has an indestructible life that can't be harmed, that can't be stolen from, that can't be taken. And he saw this life he has in himself can be the door, right? The door of the sheepfold. That's why he says, I'm the door. He's not just talking about his person. He's talking about, I am the resurrection and the life. My life will be the door that protects the sheep that are hedged about, that will keep the wolves from being able to get to them, that will keep the thieves and robbers from being able to get to them. They're called thieves and robbers because they come to steal. Well, his life, he seals you with his life, and that life that he seals you with is a life that can't be stolen from. It can't be pillaged. It can't be robbed. And that keeps you. And you start to believe that your life can't be harmed, right? You start to believe that I have an indestructible life. My life is hedged about with the presence of the Father. The Father shepherds your life by hedging you about with himself. That's why it was so powerful what we talked about last night, making the invisible God visible. 
by showing us those things because you know what it did to us? It showed us the presence of God. And in showing us the presence of God, it wants to open our eyes Do we see His presence with us all the time. And not just like a fanciful thing, oh, His presence with us. No, it means something. It means we're hedged about with His life. It means we have a shepherd. And if we actually have a shepherd and the shepherd calls himself the good shepherd, it means we can never lack anything because He's hedged us about with His life, a life that has no lack. And now when we start thinking about our life, we start thinking about this life as a hedge between us and any sin and death that tried to come against us. And in the past, we can look back and we can see in moments when we thought we were sheep, led away to the slaughter, we can see, no, the Father was there. And the Father was protecting us by shielding us, by giving us His life. And now we start thinking about that life that's there, right? We no longer think about the life we have from the world. Because it's the, world, it's the life the world has fathered that can be harmed. Right? That's why he comes to give us his life. His life can't be harmed. So then you no longer think about all the harm that came to your life. Because you see, the, world, the, the life that the world has fathered isn't your life. That's the life that can suffer harm. The father's life can't suffer harm. And now that starts being a barrier to your life. Right? And you start being healed and set free from the trauma of this world. The presence of the father. That's what the resurrection is about. It's about God forbidding the trauma that's tried to come against your life. It's about God shepherding your life with His life, right? It's God giving you a safe place. It's God showing you that you're his, He's your safe place, right? His life is the safe place. And because His life is in you and you're in Him and His presence has enveloped you, you're always safe. Right? And that starts changing your mind, which is what repentance would be. You stop thinking and identifying with the life that can be harmed, and you start identifying yourself with the life that can't be harmed. And it starts ministering healing to you. Right? I've seen this with people with PTSD. I counsel a lot of people that have been in war and are, are grappling with heavy thoughts. Right? And the heavy thoughts and the pain that comes is because they think of the harm and the suffering. Right? And I, 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 I preach the gospel to them, and they lay down that life, and then they start identifying with the life of God. God has forbid the destruction that's tried to come against your life when He raised Jesus from the dead. He's trying to show you He sealed you from harm trying to show you he's the, the sheepfold. That means he's hedged you about and he's the door. His life is keeping the door from any thieves and robbers. Right? And then you stop looking at the things that have happened to you as if they can steal from you. You start thinking, no, they can't steal from me. Jesus is the door. Right? The shepherd would actually sleep in the doorway to keep any thieves and robbers from getting in. Right? He's there. He's doing that. Whatever we've experienced in this world, the hurt, it's trying to tell us he wasn't there. He didn't do that. He hasn't shepherded us. We don't have a good shepherd. But he has, he is, he does. The shepherd would even check all the sheep when they came in the doorway to make sure there were no thieves and robbers pretending to be sheep. No wolves. Like, you know how we have the cartoon with the wolf? that pulls on the sheep clothing and it tries to go pretend like it's one of the sheep so it can get up in the fold? 
They check the sheep as they come in to make sure there's none of that going on. That's how careful God is with your life. We think safety is found in nothing bad ever happening. That's not where safety is found. Safety is found in having a life that overcomes anything bad that could ever happen. And then that heals your heart because your heart is only bruised when you think that what's happened to you can steal from you and hurt your life. It's not what's happened to you. It's what you believe about what's happened to you. It's what you believe it means. Well, God, in, when God raised Jesus from the dead, He's trying to swaddle our hearts. Right? You guys know when a little baby's born, they're born in blood? Right? And so you swaddle the baby to clean the baby from the blood. But you also swaddle the baby because they're used to being in the womb. Right? And in the womb, they feel safe. They're hedged about. They're comforted. They haven't been outside of the womb yet. And so the moment they come outside of the womb and they're not hedged about in the womb anymore, they can feel unsafe. The security, the stability can be gone. Right? Because now they're just out there. I mean, that's how we feel in the world, right? Sometimes, like, we're just out there. There's nothing between us and the world and what people can do to us and what can happen to us. We're just out there. But then they swaddle the baby so that the baby feels safe again, secure. But that's what God did with us. It says that God is wrapped in light, right? And He comes to swaddle us and wrap us in life. It says that our sin was red as crimson, meaning it was causing death to reign over us. Red as crimson is blood. We were in blood. We were in death. And the resurrection is God swaddling us from the blood, from the death, and He's swaddling us with His life. He's wrapping us in His light. He's wrapping us in His life so that we start knowing that we're safe and we're secure. And our mind becomes filled with safety and security instead of fear and worry and concern and thoughts about what's happened to us and what we need to do to protect ourselves because of what's happened to us. He's shepherding us. You've been swaddled. He's wrapped you in life. That's what the gospel comes to convince us of. That's what you see in Psalm 23. Right? The Lord is my shepherd. I do not lack. He could just as easily say, The Lord is my shepherd. I am safe. You don't lay down in the tender green grass unless you feel safe. You don't lay down beside the still water unless the water's still. The water has to be still. If it's not still, you ain't laying down. A lamb won't go lay down by a raging water. And I know this is a contradiction, and it's a good contradiction because it contradicts the carnal mind. Paul said that the wisdom revealed at the cross makes foolish the wisdom of the world, that it makes no sense to the wisdom of the world. I talk about this a lot, but you know, Psalm 22 was a prophetic psalm about Jesus on the cross. 
Psalm 23 is also a prophetic psalm about Jesus on the cross. Jesus is on the cross. And this messes up our minds, but this is the kind of thing we need to see so that we're more aware of His presence. We're more aware that when things go wrong, that the moment we can feel something go wrong and we can feel that it it isn't nice, we can immediately see the presence of the Father and we can immediately be comforted knowing we're safe. Right? This can't take my security. I'm stable. I'm safe. The Father is here. Jesus was safe on the cross. He believed he was safe on the cross. He believed he was hedged about with the Father's life on the cross. He believed that he had everything he needed for life and godliness even when he was on the cross. The Father is the shepherd of my life. He's hedged me about with himself. Jesus saw the life that he shared with the Father from the beginning. And he saw that life was his safe space. That life was his security. And even though the chaos and the storm of the death of the cross was there, he felt and he knew I'm safe because I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. And in that moment, he could feel the loving embrace of the Father. And that's why he knew he was safe. He's hedged about. The Father is the door. Thieves and robbers cannot steal from me. Wolves cannot devour me because I'm safe here. Even this body that is perishing, that is taking on this extreme calamity, this body is even safe because the life of the Father, the life that's in me from the Father, will even raise this body up stronger than it was before, never to be touched by death again. He was safe. Look look at his words. Doesn't it sound like a guy who feels safe? The Lord is my shepherd, I do not lack. He maketh me to lie down in the tender green grass. He leadeth me beside the still waters of grace. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For what? You are with me, Lord. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod and the staff above the door, keeping out the thieves and the robbers, keeping out the wolves. Your rod and your staff are keeping my life from the thieves and the robbers. They're keeping my life from the wolves. That comforts me. You prepare a table for me in the midst of my enemies. Doesn't that sound like a guy that feels safe? God can bring forth safety in our hearts even in this world, right? And that, that causes us to stop trying to protect our own hearts, our own lives, right? The walls come down. There's a Pink Floyd song. You guys know who Pink Floyd is over here? The Wall. Have you guys ever seen that movie? Tear down the wall. That guy was so scared for the wall to come down because of everything he had hidden behind the wall. Everything he did to build up that wall to feel safe and protected and okay, right? God knows we can feel that way. He understands that the world's tried to tell us we don't have a shepherd, but he comes to show himself as the shepherd and bishop of our lives. He comes to show us he's hedged us about, that he's the door, his life is the door, that his life is shielding us from all the thieves and robbers, anything that could try to destroy our lives, that our bodies are even shielded, Right? Even should something horrible come against our bodies, even should something bad happen to this body. I have a dear friend who lost a leg. Right? Her body's been shielded by the life of God, mm-hmm. and she will be raised in a body that has legs. Mm-hmm. 
right? Not even that could steal from her. She could be aware of the presence of God and see that presence with her. I'm safe. I'm protected. I'm hedged about, right? The sign you're hedged about is the resurrection, not what happens to you or doesn't happen to you in the world. That's how you find great stability born in your heart. That's how you find yourself bringing down the wall, right? The wall comes down. You start sharing. You start being honest with people, right, about what's going on. Then you can minister to one another the life of God. You get knit closer together. Become healed together as a group. It's a powerful thing, right? see now that when you put up a wall you don't protect your heart from the light you keep the dead things out yes that is exactly right that is a word from God yeah you're keeping the death inside yeah yeah it's actually a very we say a lot of things the reason why I say a lot of things is because people have a whole lot of things working to keep them from seeing the presence of God. It's actually a very simple thing that we need. It's just to see the presence of the Father always with us, in us, even having sealed us. And we, as we become aware of that, and that's why we preach the gospel, to remind ourselves of that so we continuously become more aware of that, that is everything for us. That keeps us, right? That's really all we need is to see God with us. That's really, it's really that simple. It's just we've been taught a lot of things that are like stumbling blocks. And so we come whacking them away. But all the things that I know, all the things that God showed me along the way, all those things were only so good as to bring me to the simple place of where I really know God's with me. That's all you're trying to know. Right? And so in your time with God when you're praying, if you're recognizing things that you think are are working against you knowing that. I want to give you a word of wisdom where you could understand what's working against you believing God's with you. Hard times. Things going wrong and bad. Those things are trying to tell you God's not with you. Things people say to you, right? If people don't accept you, if you think you're rejected, that's a symptom of death. And the devil would use that to try to convince you God's not there. Because if you feel rejected, it don't feel nice. And if you feel that angst in your heart, your heart's trying to tell you that you don't have life. And if you don't have life, God must not be there. But the resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ comes to show you that even in the midst of feeling weakness, even in the midst of feeling infirmity and feeling rejected, God is right there with you in the midst of that. And you start seeing God there with you in the midst of people rejecting you and people doing things to you. And all of a sudden you see God there and you start believing, I have everything I need. And that keeps you, right? And you feel okay. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. Right? It's okay. Glory to God. God's there. And so you want to recognize what's keeping you from seeing God there. It's not that there's something wrong with you. It's not that you're a bad Christian. It's not that you haven't prayed enough. It's not that you haven't learned enough. It's not that you haven't read the Bible enough. It's that death and calamity and tribulation tries to speak to us and tell us God's not there. 
So remember that in your heart the next time you experience something that you know isn't born from life. And remember, it's not a sign that God's not there. We're not living by what we see in the world and whether or not we think we see life to determine if God's there. We're living by one sign now, the sign of Jesus having been spat out the belly of the whale, right? Which is death, which is the resurrection. That declares to us that God is with us there, even as people reject us, speak against us, even as people slander our reputation, even as people try to steal from us and take from us what was ours, even as people try to do all those things to us, even as they try to assault our bodies or assault our lives, even as they try to do all of that. We're not living by those things as a sign of whether or not we're protected or safe or have what we need because God has given us a sign and it's the sign of himself manifesting in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now that's a sign for us when we're dwelling in that place and we see God is with us and he has hedged us about with his life, right? And so recognize how the Satan tries to convince us God's not there. He uses death. That's what he did to Jesus, isn't it? He come and pointed at the cross and said, this is the evidence God's not there. He does the same thing to us. Things go wrong. Relationships, jobs, ministries. Things go wrong and the feeling you have that you're separated from some good thing you have, that's the Satan pointing at what went wrong, trying to tell you, where's God? Where's God? You see, and that kind of a thing is deceiving to us because it makes sense because we know in God is only life and light. And so if this is here, how can God be here? Not be, how, how can he be here if this is here? And so then our hearts immediately jump to God's not here. We don't have what we need, right? And now we start twisting on the calamity and the trauma. And now we get wrapped up in dwelling on darkness, right? Instead of dwelling on a life that overcomes all darkness. And so when you start to, Paul said, we're no longer ignorant of the devices of the serpent. You want to understand how he tries to deceive you. This is how he does it, right? See, it works in me now instantaneously that when something goes wrong, I don't like it. I don't go throw a party. I don't go make a cake when people reject me, when people slander me and say things that aren't true, when people try to steal from me and hurt me. I'm not like making a cake like, oh, hallelujah, right? But I immediately know the serpent is trying to use those things to tell me my life is being destroyed. And if my life is being destroyed, where's God? Well, now what happens is I know the voice of the serpent. I know the good shepherd and I see the good shepherd with me. I see his presence with me. I see him there protecting me and I see nothing can destroy my life. And now I start thinking about the life that can't be destroyed instead of all the things trying to destroy my life. You see, it's a big difference. And it's the same thing it said happened to the Lord Jesus on the cross. If you read in Hebrews, it says Jesus disesteemed the death of the cross. And it says the reason why he did it was because of the glory he saw right before him. He saw the glory that he shared with the Father from the beginning. He saw that glory was in him and that glory would be manifested in him and nothing could stop it. And it shrunk the trauma and the calamity of the cross. Right? It's very beautiful what you said. And our hearts think it's protecting itself, right? No. And the reason why it's so deceptive is because our hearts were never intended to feel pain. So our hearts actually won't just sit in pain, right? 
our hearts will swing into action the moment we're confronted with pain or trauma, right? God knows that about our hearts too. That's why He comes to swaddle our hearts with His light so that we become more aware of His presence. So we see He's built the wall already and we don't have to build the wall, right? And so now we're mindful of Him and how He was our barrier. He was our wall and we don't build up our own walls, right? Like with me, when they told me I was too intense, they told me something about my life that I thought is not a good sign. And it's a sign that I'm not as I ought to be. Something's off, right? Something's not right. I don't have some good thing I need. Well, then I started trying to compensate for that by withdrawing from people, not talking, right? I'm very much to myself. I would feel great pain at the thought of talking to people because after all, I might hurt them. I might be too much for them. I might swallow them and consume them. And so rather I'll just be quiet. And I lived like that for a lot of years. That was a wall that I built. And it was depriving me of intimacy. It was depriving me of healing. It was depriving me of being who and what I am, right? And now God, so you see what happens then is you try to live your life keeping from ever hearing that you're too intense, right? And I thought I was free from that and we went and started at the church. You know, the first thing, I thought I was free because I was gone for, I went away for 15 years and I thought I was free. I come back to start the church. I even forgot about all that because it had been so long. The first message I preached in the church, you know what the first words were that somebody said to me? Wow, you're so intense. <laughs> I literally died on the spot. It triggered me, like PTSD. It wasn't just that that person said that. It was like all the hurt all of a sudden manifested all over again in that one moment. And I lived in that anxiousness and anxiety for a couple of years. You can ask people in the church. People that were close to me knew every day this dude's dying. Every day, every Sunday, I thought, today's the day I'm telling everybody I'm shutting it down. Right? Because the pain was so much, I didn't know what I know now, and so I was trying to heal myself from that pain. I was going to build up a wall. I was going to save myself from the hurt. Right? But what happened is I started seeing God there with me in the hurt. And what I started happening was, I, since I saw God there, I sat there. Right? And I didn't try to heal myself from the hurt. And I sat there with God. And we just sat there talking and talking and talking and talking. And what he was doing is the same thing he was doing to Adam in the garden. He was clothing me. He was clothing my heart. He was healing my heart from that word. Right? And you know what? It was healed. And it is healed. I still don't like it if somebody says I'm too intense. I don't throw a party. I'm not like, oh, hallelujah. But he has actually convinced me that my life can't be harmed. I can say that. He has actually convinced me my life can't be harmed. He has actually convinced me that what people think about me, what people say about me, how people feel about me, can't steal from me, right? That can't take from me. That the good reputation that I, that I desire, I have in him. The respect I desire, I have in him. Jesus says, how can you receive the honor that God gives when you seek honor from one another? We were created to desire honor, 
but the world's convinced us to look for it from people. And then if we don't think people are honoring us, we feel distraught and we feel like we don't have something we need for life. But God has honored us. God has honored us with himself. That is the highest honor. And he will come and convince you of all these same things. And you will find yourself being set free. Right? Just the presence. So many times I almost shut down the church. Because I didn't understand things. I thought, I'm a grace preacher, and I feel tormented all the time? Something's not right. I didn't feel like I was at rest. And so I was going to shut down the church. I got to go get and rest. And then God sent a prophet along the way. They wrote me a, a long letter, and they didn't know about any of this. They didn't know I was going to shut down the tr- nothing. And they just said in the letter, every time you get up on stage, you are resting. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and then God showed me. He said, because Greg, you're not running away trying to clothe yourself. You're not trying to heal yourself from the pain you feel at everybody thinking you're too much. Now in this moment, what you're doing is you're sitting with me and thinking of my presence with you. And that is to be at rest. Jesus' body didn't feel good when he was on the cross, but he saw the presence of the Father and it put him to rest, right? The Father is just trying to show you, here I am. He's trying to show you he's there, right in the middle of it, to where you see him, to where, okay, he's here, he's here. If he's here, then I have everything I need. And it starts putting you to rest. And it's in that place where he puts you to rest in the midst of the trauma that the trauma gets plucked out of you. It's like he sends it away from you in that place. And you move on from that point, always aware of the presence of the Father, right? Where darkness could swirl around, pain could swirl around, but you're mindful, the Father is with me. I lack nothing. The Father is my shepherd. He's hedged me about with his life. I lack nothing, right? And now you start looking to the Father to find your your needs met. If you feel afraid, you no longer think, I'm going to build a wall in my heart. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. No, you feel afraid, you look to the Father, right? You see Him there, and you start being healed from fear, right? You feel lack, you look to the Father. He starts persuading you, you have an abundant life. Do you know what an abundant life is? It's a life that abounds over the death in the world. That's what it means. I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. It superabounds over anything that could happen in this world. That's the life he came to give us. He's trying to persuade us all of that. Here I am. You see the life I have in myself? Here I am. You want to know what kind of life I have? Behold the resurrection. Here I am. You're worried about what this did to your life? Look at my life. Here it is. Look what it did. Here it is. It's in you, right? And he's just always romancing your heart with that. there's a saturation point that happens where your heart is filled with so many, um, not questions, but desires that God is bringing forth to, for you now to ask him for that. Because I see um, that the thing that the Father is, is, is is prompting me is what I want to say, prompting me to to desire that in my weakness that I don't 
abhor myself because you relate weakness to you not being in faith and that that being weak to find myself to actually be comfortable in my weakness in his presence in order for him to reveal the strength of his life even in the midst of my weakness yeah because we have a tendency of feeling inadequate and a tendency of not being open to God. And I see that even in this message that God is saying in my heart, you know, that my image is now restored and you know that I won't harm you. So allow me to be there not feel ashamed of your weakness. Yeah. That's what I feel that the Lord is stirring in my heart. Because he's saying that even in your weakness, I will make you strong. But we want to be strong all the time. When we get slapped with calamity or something suddenly, it takes our attention off of the God who dwells with us. And that's another thing. Death is lifted up in our sight. You know, it it, it, it is magnified and it's like, where is God? Yeah. Because we, it, the death has blocked our view mm -hmm. of God. And that is one of those things that I thought it was a shameful thing. Well, when things happen to you, why can't you see God? But he knows. Mm. That's what he's saying. I know. And I'm in that with you. And I'm cleansing your heart from this image of me not being present. That's right. Because we equate God being present that we're not going to have any problems. We're not going to have any distresses or troubles. We equate that to God is present. But the truth is God is showing us I came in your darkness and bore your distresses. And bore your weakness. And I want you to see that in my image that I'm showing you that I'm present. Nothing is happening to you that didn't happen to me first. And I want you to live in the life now that I have brought forth by what I did. And so it just, it just made me feel that even in my weakness, even when I feel weak that God is there yeah. and he's not despising me because I'm not this woman of faith and power no he wants to empower me with his light and with his strength yeah. even there all the death out so that I can see him for who he is today. That's what he's doing in my heart. I don't know about everybody else. Mm. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> Beautiful.
is not the absence of strength right and we we look for signs we're always looking for signs to make sure we're okay life is okay and we're looking for the wrong signs right the, the sign we look for is the resurrection right the cross those are the signs and those signs will always declare to you that strength is present with you whether you feel strong or not right because God's there hmm yeah, that's the biggest change I think I see in my life. Like Gwen said, I don't abhor myself for weakness anymore. Neither do I think it means God's not there, right? And you can read that in. Yeah. yeah. It stills the storm of the heart that tries to come when you encounter things, right? It's the difference between being swept up and sinking in the water or, you know, walking on the water or Jesus pulling you out of the water. Is what you judge. Mm. No, God's here. Mm. There He is. The Word made flesh in Jesus. Mm. For this reason He came, so you could know He's there, so that you could be caught up in His presence, mm. no matter what's going on around you. And then you would feel safe, mm. right? It would make you feel safe even if everything around you looks unsafe. Hmm. Mm. The Lord said, Karen, I'm so beautiful that I have a, a string on my heart that you can take sync it in and everybody's heart. What you were saying, it's what was saying about God and uh, mm, what God is doing in this healing.
me the way I do. 